1: He was The Economist's greatest editor. Standing behind his desk, armed with his steel pen, he produced thousands of words a week on an astonishing range of subjects in quite glittering prose. The reason why so few good books are written is that so few people who can write know anything. One of the greatest pains to human nature is the pain of a new idea. He socialised with everyone who mattered, philosophers and prime ministers alike, and he advised governments on both sides of the political divide. His book, The English Constitution, remains the definitive description of the relationship between Britain's constitutional monarchy and its parliamentary government. It even featured in an episode of The Crown. I'm Adrian Wooldridge, you're listening to The Economist Asks, and this week we're asking, what can Britain learn from Badgett? I'm joined by James Grant. He's the founder of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, a financial markets journal, and he has written several books, including a biography of the founding father, John Adams. His latest is entitled Badgett, The Life and Times of the Greatest Victorian. James Grant, welcome to The Economist
0: Asks. Oh, thank you. It is my pleasure. I'm glad to be here.
1: James, you're perhaps a surprising biographer, Badgett, in the sense that first, you're an American, and secondly, you're not an academic. How did you first become interested in badgers? Well,
0: I am a financial journalist, so I follow the same line of work, and I was a enormous admirer of this man. I would go to the New York Public Library on the weekends and uh, when they had books, uh, books have subsequently been moved to New Jersey or someplace, but they had books in the library and they had bound volumes of The Economist from Badgett's day in the 1860s and 70s, especially when he was the editor. I came across him, I guess, in uh, in college. One of my favorite professors actually in graduate school was a man named Jacques Barzin, who was a great cultural critic in America. And he was a Badgett fan. Uh, so I learned how to pronounce his name, as in Gadget, no small thing. I saw that the prior biography of Gadget uh, had been produced as long ago as the 1950s. It was a very good book, but it was somewhat out of date. And I realized that no one had actually looked at the fundamental documents of the Stuckey's Banking Company, which is the Gadget family financial institution, which these documents were on file at RBS archives outside Edinburgh. I'm glad I did it, but also glad to have done it. There's nothing like having written, I always say.
1: And can you give us a brief summary of his life for readers yes. who may not be familiar with him? His
0: dates were 1826 to 1857. He died young, 51ish. He was a precocious youngster in the West country, born in Langport, above the family bank. He was raised in a household with a quite mad mother, and a dutiful and somewhat unimaginative father, but a loving one. And he uh, went away to college.
1: And he, when you say mad, I mean you do not mean yeah crazy, not meaning just eccentric. I mean she mm-hmm. was very, very troubled.
0: She was certainly eccentric as well, but she was troubled. And Badgett uh, bore this as a doppelganger. He uh, it, it troubled him his life long that he might uh, be in the same way. And he actually confessed this to Eliza Wilson when he proposed to her. He said very solemnly that his mother was mad and that she should know this. Badgett was a most precocious student, certainly had the academic qualifications for Oxford or Cambridge. His mother wanted him to go to one of those places. His father, Unitarian, refused. Badgett, to gain admission, would have had to subscribe to the Articles of Religion of the Church of England, 39 of them. He would not to do that, so he went instead to University College London, called by some the infidel college, because it was uh, not given to those things. He always was an outstanding student. He went on to study law, which he detested. He went back to uh, Langport and settled in at the family bank. He said... Uh, playfully to one of his friends that if it's only his relatives would uh, learn to understand that uh, addition and subtraction were matters of taste and subjective uh, spirit rather than objective fact he much better at what he's doing he, he couldn't add columns of figures. he was very good at mathematics in college but he refused to add columns of figures in fact his life one of his charming things Adrian was that um, after his death I'm jumping ahead now a few decades after his death his works were edited in preparation for a a production of five substantial volumes of the collected works of Walter Badgett. This is by the Traveler's Life Insurance Company. And a man named Forrest Morgan was charged with editing Badgett stuff. Which meant checking up on his quotations and uh, correcting his facts, and uh, maybe doing a little work on his syntax. And this man Morgan, in the preface to his collected works, was he couldn't he couldn't help it. He had to express his exasperation. Badgett didn't check facts. He couldn't even. he made them up. He was the worst speller and the worst. He he made up he made up the quotations too. He didn't even check them, (laughs) and the expression of absolute frustration and and, and and indeed rage with with his great man, my hero, Badget, was so funny.
1: But this, this imaginative um, approach <laughs> to facts and quotations. Does this still
0: exist by The, the uh, Economist, by the way? Is this something you still practice? Um,
1: that we're very, very assiduous in our fact-checking, ah. but some of our writers sometimes <laughs> get their facts wrong and have to be uh, have to have them checked and corrected, it must be said. But uh, how did he become connected with The Economist? Ah.
0: Well, it was through ro- romance. So Bajit uh, was precocious in many things, but seemed not to care about romance. And he was a man of about 30 when he came upon James Wilson, who was the, uh, of course, the founder of this great journal, and also, more importantly for our story, uh, James Wilson's eldest daughter, Eliza. Eldest of six. Eldest of six, right. He was charmed by her and uh, charmed, indeed, by Wilson himself. Uh, Wilson had uh, had read some of Badgett's stuff. He'd been freelancing. He went to France to cover the coup d'etat in 1851, I guess it was. And So uh, Wilson uh, signed him up to write periodically for The Economist, and Badgett would write pieces, which he signed a banker. That was the economist style that was very, very sedate. A uh, story on horse breeding, for example, would be run out under the uh, headline you not find in the sun today. The headline would be horse breeding.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> That's screamer. Right. Horse breeding. Right. Horse breeding. <laughs> <laughs> And he eventually becomes editor. Yes,
0: because Wilson died. Wilson went to India to come in affect the chancellor of uh, the entire country of India under the British rule. And uh, he died uh, not not long after he arrived in India. And Badgett became the head of the Wilson household, as was customary in those days, as well as the head of the magazine, while also running the Stuckey's branch in, uh, in London and writing these wonderful essays on the side simply for the love of it. It's extraordinary
1: that some of his most famous essays when he was editor of The Economist were not published in The Economist. They were published in rival publications. Yeah.
0: What is also extraordinary is, is, is how intimate was the circle it's in which he right. wrote. The Economist yeah. during his day had a circulation never reaching 4,000. So we, grant's interest rate observer, feel ourselves rather superior to this, slightly superior to that circulation level. But uh, the, the, the journals for which Badger wrote, the egghead journals for which he wrote circulations of 2,500 or 3,000, a very, very small circle of, uh, of intellectuals in those days.
1: But he was right at the center of yes, London uh, at a time when London was the capital of the world's yeah. greatest empire and Britain was at, in its ascendancy. What sort of people was he seeing? What, 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 what was the oh, political scene well, at the he, time? Well,
0: Padgett had the most peculiar personality for journalists. He didn't want to accumulate acquaintances because you'd have to greet them on the street and say hello. He was a, that kind of guy. But he fell into the company of, for example, William E. Gladstone, four times prime minister, four times chancellor, of of course, one of the great Victorian figures, period, but certainly the greatest, I would gather, political figure. And he became chancellor, as uh, someone said, uh, Gladstone spare chancellor.
1: But it's extraordinary that um, he thought nothing of advising Gladstone and then writing articles praising or condemning Gladstone's
0: decisions. I'm not sure how you run things today, but Badgett was a stockholder in this most profitable, generative uh, financial institution called Stuckey's. I mean, they earned, the financial listeners, 44.0 percent on its owner's equity. And today... A uh, bank would be lucky and uh, well regarded to earn ten or twelve post crisis. So Badgett uh, spoke from interest, and he advised Badget, He advised Glasson at one point, uh, say, "Um, you might think about uh, government guarantees of banknotes,"
1: which was. Then, and the bank is issuing its own currency, isn't it?
0: Yes, they, uh, in those days, uh, gold and silver alone were money, and banknotes were promises to pay that money.
1: The other thing about Badgett, which is. Very noticeable, uh, certainly to me, is his great bushy beard, the moustache, and the the, the huge yeah. beard. That the only photograph, oh, the, the right? Of him. Except
0: what we did. Yeah. What we did. Mm. We co- we commissioned a, uh, a police forensic artist to look at this one and only likeness, and then to render a full on face. You saw this in the book. Yes. And and we had uh, we didn't trust. By the way, we didn't trust one forensic artist. We had two of them, and they they r- arrived a consensus. And I had a, an artist touch up what they. You can see it right here in the book. Look at it.
1: But his 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 bank. I mean, I read in your book that his bank had quite strict rules about people not having. Well, yes, beards this was during the, uh,
0: the Crimean War. Uh, the Blokes, sorry, would would uh, would grow beards to express their solidarity with the troops who grew beards to insulate their faces from the harsh Crimean winter. The bank didn't like this. You treat
1: Badgett in this book very much as a financial journalist and an economic journalist. That's a lot is the, that's a lot of the focus of your book. Now we tend to think of him in in, in Britain, certainly in my profession, as a political thinker and a constitutional thinker, and that's—I mean—you obviously talk about that, but 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 you try and put the financial side of things right at the center center of it. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: I've been taken to task about this a little bit by some critics, and I think they have a point. I, I rather slid by some of the political things, not entirely, but my focus is on what I do for a living, right? Which is uh, aspire to be Walter Badgett. Badgett was a very good thinker about politics. He was a bit of a snob. Although one must see this in the context of his day and not ours, he was all in favor of weighing votes rather than counting heads. He thought that it would be a very bad thing if everybody got to vote.
1: As did John Stuart Mill. I mean, most liberals at the time would have thought right. that. Where,
0: where Mill and Badgett yeah. differed, of course, was in the eligibility of women. And one of my favorite moments in this book had nothing to do with Badgett exactly, except Badgett was, at best, condescending toward, at worst, a misogynist Toward women, And uh, Mill gets up in Parliament and says, uh, this is during, I think, the debate over the Reform Act of 1867, says, you on both sides of the aisle who uh, contrive to make so much do with so little would uh, deem women unfit to vote who their lives long do make so very little go so very far. This is with respect to economy and money. So Mill was very much ahead of his time. Badgett, with regard to women, was very behind his time. I think he had terrific insight into the nature of British governance. He was uh, so close to these people who did govern. He was virtually one of them.
1: But in some ways, his insight into British government is a very strikingly eccentric one in which he says that basically government at its best is based on a noble lie that you need to deceive people, that you need to persuade people that the government is done by kings and queens and aristocrats because they've got their colorful figures. And in fact, the real business of government is done behind the scenes by technocrats of various sorts or clever men. Uh, and very much clever men rather than clever women of various sorts. And he seems to think that's great. You know, he does deception think that's is great. great. Yeah, yeah.
0: He, he wants you to know that party uh, loyalty, that uh, the supposed uh, dominance of ministerial government, uh, the ministers themselves, all this is, uh, is as you say, a, a rather show and uh, certainly the the monarchy is is a wonderful bit of theatre but behind the scenes a Davos man jumping ahead a few <laughs> generations is running things he does condescend
1: and i think even by the standards of his time which were very different from ours obviously i think he is contemptuous of regular people he is he is particularly uh, women i mean he talks uh, uh, about women being prepared for power and for serious jobs in the future, perhaps two two thousand years hence, um, but he doesn't awful, see awful. this 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 great change that's that, 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 that's growing. Uh,
0: no, he does not, and he is uh, scornful.
1: Yes, yeah, scornful is exactly he the would, right word. He would talk yes.
0: about the starvable class. And some of this, you know, some of this is whimsical. Some of it is ironic, in and in a, in a pose for his friends who are like-minded. There is an undercurrent of scorn in his attitude towards the average human being that is not present. For example, in the rhetoric of uh, Benjamin Disraeli, for example, yes. was not a scornful person. Yes. Nor was Nor was Gladstone. Badgett was uh, uh, imperious.
1: Yes, and this comes back to bite him when he stands for parliament, I think. That, oh, yes. that, Tell us yeah. about him standing for parliament, which is rather an unfortunate experience on his
0: part. <laughs> it was uh, in the electoral district of Bridgewater. Yes. He's a West Country guy, and this was uh, – uh, actually, this is stuckies branch in, in Bridgewater, and Badgett and, uh, uh, goes there, and uh, he's standing as a liberal, and he uh, agrees to finance the, uh, the project. It cost him a few hundred pounds. Come election day, this was not exactly Badgett's uh, milieu. I mean, uh, people were drinking it before lunch, and the uh, conservatives were plying their people with alcohol, and I guess the liberals were theirs. Uh, Badgett's uh, quiet mortification, people were actually handing out gold sovereigns, yes, to uh, to buy votes. And Badgett had been assured that this would be an honest election. The liberals, in fact, had campaigned on electoral honesty. The day wears on, and um, Badgett's guys are handing out, as they call the these uh, gold sovereign, gold coins, they call them tin. It turns out that the Tories had a much better sense of the available remaining votes to be bought than did the liberals. So nothing about principle, that the liberals for whom Badgett stood, were just out-generaled. And at the end of the day, Badgett loses, I've forgotten what the number is, uh, six or eight or 15 crooked votes. Badgett says, "Uh, uh, by the way, did I uh, see, uh, was there any uh, 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 corruption? Uh, Yes, I'm sorry to say there was, uh, Mr. Badgett. Ah, but Badgett agrees to pay the election fees and to compensate his handlers, uh, for their outlays to buy votes as well. And he's hauled up, Badgett is, before Parliament to explain himself as a fellow who stood for pure elections, actually stooping to do this terrible thing. And Badgett says, "I don't, I didn't mean to... I didn't know about that. I didn't even know about this, and um, and uh, but you paid for it. Yeah, I didn't want to seem as he. The word he used was mean, as in cheap. Right. It's terribly embarrassing. Yeah. It wasn't the only time that badges he stood for election in Manchester, and he went to Manchester, and he. Uh, He got up in front of a crowd with uh, an astonishing lack of of self-awareness. He gave this talk, and uh, he apparently came on very aristocratic. But Badgett at one point uh, says it would be a terrible thing if everyone got the vote. And there were great hoots of derision from the audience and said, Would any working man here please come forward and care to debate me in this? Oh, and they moan with derision. And yeah. then somebody called out Lord Dundreary. You know, uh, it's
1: very good. It's hmm. extraordinary that somebody who is so so world-weary and so cynical in so many ways, when he's actually confronted with the reality of politics, <laughs> comes across as a rather hopeless, well, naive uh, fool. So,
0: some of us who write for a living have been confronted with that. Yeah, indeed.
1: <laughs> Eventually, I mean, he dies at the age of fifty-one, which is very young, and yet he's written the most extraordinary amount by then. How did he manage to be a politician, a writer, write for the, edit the Economist, write for all sorts of other publications? Well, there
0: are, there are two kinds of writers: the people who enjoy the doing, people who enjoy the having done right. it. Right, uh, badger I think was a first draft writer. I think the words, I think his pen could barely keep up. With his thoughts, there are people, I dare say there are people on, this, on these very premises who uh, can walk around the newsroom, if that's what they call it here, and uh, compose something in their heads and uh, come back, sit down and knock it off. And the first draft is is pretty good. That's That was Badgett.
1: So he didn't really revise. It was the first draft and then… I,
0: I think so. I, I, I'd never seen his, uh, his spoiled copy, but uh, the sheer… Volume of his output suggests strongly that he was a first draft author. And, uh, you know, it's wonderfully fluent, isn't it?
1: Yes, extraordinary to read. I mean, it's a sort of champagne prose style. I mean, it's <laughs> And it, the one thing is because his prose style is so good and it's so enjoyable to read it that I wonder if he's been es- underestimated as a thinker.
0: Well, that, I think on the contrary. I think that his uh, his power through the generations uh, owes in good part to the strength and the luster of his writing, much as Keynes's influence owes to that as well.
1: I think Keynes' is a very interesting comparison because his prose is so wonderful. And they both have wonderful prose and that you get carried along with the exuberance of their writing. What lessons do you think Badgett has for us today I'm particularly interested in his notion of animated moderation and his notion that in order to to save the world from populism, financial turmoil from popular turmoil, you need to have a sort of – a tempering of liberalism with conservatism and conservatism with liberalism.
0: Right. He did say that. He believed that. I read this in The Economist. itself. I read this, in fact, in Badgett and The Economist, that a very good piece about Davos Man. And Badgett was that figure – Ahead of his day. He was ahead of his time there. He was all about the ruling of the elites. He was all about the uh, disenfranchisement of people who ought to be franchised, uh, who some say should have gotten the vote. He was about the uh, superior knowledge of uh, the Bank of England and others. He, if he were alive today, he would be a member of the Monetary Policy Committee, whether we call it here. He would uh, be uh, one of the great and the good. He would be all about... The recondite pseudoscience of modern central banking, I'm sure of it, he would, uh, in his day, he would say, as if it were revealed truth, gold and silver alone are money, Uh, banknotes are promised to pay money, he was a gold standard guy, in this day and age, he would absolutely... Be witheringly contemptuous of those who could still contend that gold has a monetary role, and the central banks have overstepped themselves. I am really—I just believe this uh, of Badgett. Um, neither, neither one of us—you actually, because you are Badgett—you know better than I what he would be doing. But I think—I think he would be—I think that uh, he would be very much approve of uh, of the man called Badgett and the Economist. Actually,
1: um, that's very kind of you to say. But you think that he his reaction to to Trump and. And he'd be horrified leave uh, and, and the, the leave vote would he be horrified?
0: Well, he, you know is, is uh, uh, you know the economist, of course, uh, owes its existence to uh, the campaign against tariffs and uh, especially against corn laws, tariffs against Grain, as it were called in those days. Uh, the Economist has lived and breathed on the doctrine of free trade, lowlies, 100, whatever they are, years. And here we come along and, and, uh, and there's a great reaction against that now. And, uh, so I, I can't imagine Badgett being in favor of any of that.
1: I agree with that. But I do think to some extent that Badgett was a realist in the sense that he comes along. When he comes along, The Economist is very much a sort of pure free trade journal. And what he does is marry it a little yes, bit with the establishment. Yes, he he tries to add some conservatism into is that.
0: for what is. Yeah, what is. And, and, and he, and he exactly. would not waste breath or let alone emotional power on regretting what has passed. And people would say, the gold reserve of the country ought not to be concentrated in the Bank of England. And Badgett would say, that's right. It ought not to be concentrated in the Bank of England. But it is concentrated in the Bank of England. And that is that. Exactly.
1: So you have to come to terms with the world as it is. Right. And you have to use – a little bit of conservatism to animate your liberalism and a little bit of liberalism to animate your conservatism. It sounds dull, doesn't it? Um, well, I think at the heart of budget there is a sort of realism. We have to come to terms with the way the world is. We can't just keep spinning some idealized version Except of the world. Except if
0: you're going to be a journalist, why must you submit to the way things are? The reason we're doing this is because we are romantics. We have a vision of the way that things should be. And Badgett just kind of uh, ignored that uh, office of journalism. He didn't He didn't have a, a grand romantic and perhaps unrealistic vision to which you hold out to the readers. What's wrong? You know, that's part of what we do, isn't it? is it not?
1: Absolutely. Th- thank you, James, very much for, for talking to us about Badgett.
0: Well, Badgett, thank you for having me. It's been a delight.
1: <laughs> to keep up with Badgett today in my weekly column on British politics, please subscribe. Go to theeconomist.com slash radio offer. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Adrian Waldridge, also known as Badgett. And in London, this is The Economist.